You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. It has been a while since we have done our Through the Bible series. Feels like forever ago that we finished up with Isaiah, but I am excited to get into Jeremiah. Now, with everybody who read Isaiah for the longest time and said, I really don't understand what's going on, how many of you feel the same way with the book of Jeremiah? Yes? Okay. I had a feeling, and I will say that yesterday... Um, just reading through the book and going through the study for today, so many things started to fall into place. And what I'm noticing with these books of prophecy, remember with Isaiah, before we got into it, we had to understand what was happening in the history. What is going on in Judah's history? What is going on with the northern kingdom of Israel? What's going on with the countries that are surrounding? Because Jeremiah is going to address all of these people, And with addressing him, we have to understand what is going on. So let's first start with just the basics here. It was written from around 627 B.C. to 570 B.C. It was written somewhere in there. And the time period it covers is 627 B.C. all the way to the time of Christ, around 25 to 30 A.D. The author is, take a guess, Ethan. Jeremiah, yes, very good. Author is Jeremiah. And the audience, the audience is very important. Remember, you always want to ask yourself, who is this being written to? Now, the easy answer would be to say, well, the people of Judah or the people of Israel. Be more specific. It was written to the generation of Judah right before Judah went into Babylonian captivity. That's very important to remember. This is the generation right before Babylon comes and takes them into captivity. Now, the verses that we just read in chapter 36 offer a little insight into the origin of this great book. The Lord told them, everything that I have told you since the beginning of your ministry, I want you to compile it all together and I want you to give it to the king. Now, the king tore it up and threw it in the fire and burnt it. And that shows you how God preserves his word. He preserved his word perfectly. And Jeremiah just wrote it over again. There were added to it many like words. God said, okay, you're trying to get rid of my word. First of all, I'm going to preserve it. And also, I'm going to add more judgment to it because you just got rid of my word. Now, some certain things about Jeremiah. It is a long book. And I misinformed you in chapel the other day because I told you that Jeremiah was longer than Psalms. Remember that? So you are right. Psalms is a little bit longer in word count. Psalms actually has 50 more words in it than Jeremiah does. Jeremiah is only short of of Psalms by 50 words. Now in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, Jeremiah is longer than Psalms. Isaiah is the second largest book as far as chapters are concerned. Uh, But uh, just Jeremiah is a long, long, long book. It's a unique book because it's a compilation of stories involving Jeremiah and also sermons preached by Jeremiah. And it's all brought together from his ministry of around 50 years long. It's a non-sequential book. It is not in chronological order. And that is where some confusion comes in. I will point that out when it happens. But it doesn't have to be in chronological order in order to fulfill its purpose. But in order to keep away some confusion, remember it's not in chronological order. It's a very personal book. 
In many ways, the book of Jeremiah reads like an autobiography. Um, and uh, some people even say Jeremiah's prophecies were his biography. But the details given about Jeremiah's emotions, his reactions to God's call upon his life, his devotion to Jerusalem and the people of Israel are very intimate in their details. Uh, it's a prophetic book. The prophecies mostly regard the kingdom of Babylon. He mentions Babylon 164 times in his prophecies, and that is more than all the other books of the Bible combined. He is very interested in Babylon, and God wants his people to see what is happening with Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied along with many other prophets, including Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel, and possibly, probably, Obadiah and Nahum. Jesus even quoted from the prophecies of Jeremiah. It's an inquisitive book. I encourage you to go through just with a pencil as you're reading Jeremiah and underline all the questions in the book. Questions from God to man, man to man, man to God. Uh, incredible book and questions everywhere. It's a divine book. Now, what do I mean by that? Obviously, every book in the Bible is a divine book, but here's what I mean by it. Jeremiah contains some of the most graphic messages of judgment and justice upon Judah. But it also contains some of the most compassionate messages of hope and grace. So what I mean by it's a divine book, only God can bring hope even in judgment. Only God can be just enough to punish the sin and yet gracious enough to save the sinner. And you're going to see that scattered all throughout Jeremiah. What is the purpose of Jeremiah? Well, along with pretty much every other book of prophecy, the purpose is warning. Really what you could write at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, and you can turn to chapter 1 if you would like, but Jeremiah chapter 1, if you want to write kind of right above the title, Jeremiah is a call to repentance. Now, I'll kind of ask that in our quizzes as we go, for, go forward. Jeremiah is a call to repentance. It's a warning. Jeremiah warned against the devastation of sin. He warned against the judgment of God upon that sin, but he also warned about the grace and mercy of God that would save people from their sin if they would repent. He warned them of the sin, the judgment to come upon the sin, but the grace and mercy of God to forgive them of their sin if they would repent. When you keep this purpose of warning in your mind, it makes the book easier to outline. I'm not saying it makes it easy to outline. Jeremiah is one of the most, if not the most difficult books to outline in the Bible. But when you keep this idea of warning, it makes it a little bit easier. Here's what I came up with, and every single person you read after is going to say something different. But I have part one as chapters 1 through 25, part 2 as 26 through 45, part 3 as 46 through 51, and part 4 as the very last chapter, 52. I'll repeat that. Part 1 is chapters 1 to 25, part 2, 26 through 45, part 3, 46 through 51, and part 4, is the last chapter 52. Chapters 1 through 25 deal with accusation and warning to Judah. Accusation and warning to Judah. Part 2 is God's coming judgment upon Judah. 
Part three is God's coming judgment upon the nations. And part four is Jeremiah's prophecies fulfilled. Part one, accusation and warning to Judah. Part two, God's coming judgment upon Judah. Part three, God's coming judgment upon the nations. And part four, Jeremiah's prophecies fulfilled. And again, in order to understand the book, we have to familiarize ourselves with what is happening. Understand what is going on in, in the history of the world as Jeremiah comes on the scene. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, that's the city that he lives in, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Very important. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the, sons of Jos the son of Josiah, king of Judah, Unto the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, very important. Unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month, then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. Okay, let's break that down here real quick. When Jeremiah is called, he's called in the thirteenth year of Josiah. Repeat that with me. The thirteenth year of Josiah. That makes it 60 years since Isaiah has passed away, which makes it 100 years since the northern kingdom of Israel has been carried into captivity by Assyria. So Judah is now the standalone kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel has been gone for about 100 years now. In that time, Assyria's power begins to fade away Egypt starts getting stronger, but Babylon really starts getting stronger. What year of Josiah's reign? 13th year of Josiah's reign. King Josiah is only 21 years old at that time. Many people believe that Jeremiah was around the same age as Josiah when he begins. So Jeremiah also around 20, 21 years old. Going back to the 8th year of Josiah's reign, when he was only 16, Josiah seriously began to seek God's will for Judah. You read in 2 Chronicles 34, tells us that in the 12th year of his reign, which would be one year before Jeremiah comes on the scene, we're following so far, in the 12th year of his reign, he starts to take drastic steps to cleanse the land of Judah from idolatry. By the 18th year of his reign, he is now 26 years old. Jeremiah has been on the scene prophesying for five years at this point. Josiah begins to repair the house of the Lord. While repairs are being made, he finds a copy of the law of Moses. When Josiah reads it, he calls for a sweeping reformation of Judah. The people are called to follow God only. They even hold a Passover feast for the first time in a very long time. However, we learn two very important facts about this sweeping reformation. One of the facts is found in 2 Kings 23. Now, don't turn there. I'll read it for you. The second of the facts is in Jeremiah 3. The sweeping reformation is taking place under Josiah because he's found the law of the Lord. But here's fact number one about it. Even though Josiah turned to God with all of his heart, the Bible says, more than any king before him and more than any king after, God says this in 2 Kings 23. While this reformation is happening, listen to what God says. Notwithstanding, 
The Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. Now this begs the question, why would God still choose to allow Judah to go into captivity while this reformation is happening? And that leads us to fact number two. Judah's decision to follow this reformation of Josiah was all a show. It was all pretend. Turn with me to chapter three of Jeremiah. We're going to go over this as we go through our overview, but look in verse 10 of chapter 3. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. And this is proven by the fact that once Josiah died, the people of Judah went right back to their old ways. But here is what I'm trying to bring out here and what we must understand in order to understand the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah's ministry begins, he's preaching to people who seem to have everything right on the outside. They're following the law of Moses in letter. The idols and the high places have been destroyed. The sodomites have been removed from the land. The prophets are preaching. The priests are serving. The people are doing what they're supposed to do. But God that looks on the heart knows it's not sincere. So he sends Jeremiah to prophesy a message of judgment during one of the biggest reformations in Israel's history. No wonder the people, if you don't know much about your Bible, the people hated Jeremiah. In Jeremiah's 50-year ministry, he had not one convert. They threw him in prison. They beat him. They, they mocked him. They hated this man. And it's for this reason. While they're patting themselves on the back, look at all this reformation, Jeremiah comes and says, God's no, God knows you're a bunch of hypocrites. And his ministry continues all the way until the very last king of Judah, Zedekiah, is taken captive into Babylon and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. In a truly pivotal time in the history of Israel, God needed a man with both a heart and a backbone, an ability to warn and an ability to weep, persistence in preaching and persistence in prayer, hatred for sin and love for sinners. And this was Jeremiah. So we can go back to chapter 1 now where we begin. Verse 1 through 3 is just an introduction to the time period of Jeremiah's ministry. Verse 4 through 10, we see how Jeremiah's ministry found its beginning. God tells Jeremiah he was created to be a prophet, not just to Israel, but to all nations. And at first, Jeremiah doubts this calling because of how young he is. And if you study out what Jeremiah says in verse 6, I, O Lord God, or or then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I'm a child. At that point, depending on how you study out that word, he could be as young as 15 years old. He could be as old as 30. But he's young compared to his other prophet peers. Could be as possible as just a teenager at this time. But God responds to Jeremiah's reluctance. And he says, I am calling you, so don't give excuses. I will be with you, so don't be afraid. 
and I will tell you what to, what to say, so don't you dare keep silent. And look at what God says in verse 10. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. You see those last two, how they're different. Jeremiah has a ministry of both judgment and hope. A ministry that is both destructive and constructive. And let that be a lesson to us. A lot of times, every time, before God can do anything with us, before God can build our lives, he's got to break down the things that need to be broken down. If God is going to use you, he's going to bruise you. The, mess, the vessel of clay is going to be marred in the hand of the potter. And the fig tree, if it's going to bring forth fruit, needs to be digged about and dunged. But God will do that so that we can bring forth fruit. And God foretells in verse 11 through 16 of, Jer of Jerusalem's coming judgment. And he does so by showing Jeremiah two visions. Vision number one in verse 11 and 12 is the rod of an almond tree. This vision was to signify the certainty and the proximity of, the, of this judgment. People knew that the almond tree was the first tree to awaken in springtime. So God is saying, my judgment is going to be coming just like an almond tree would, would bud first of all the trees. Second vision is in verse 13 through 16, a vision of a seething pot facing the north. Basically saying that is God's way of showing how judgment is going to come from a nation from the north. Of course, we know that to be Babylon. And in verse 17 through 19, Jeremiah is commissioned to begin his prophetic ministry, and he's warned it is not going to be the smoothest ministry, Jeremiah, just so that you know. Look in verse 19. They shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. It doesn't matter who's against you if the Lord is for you. With that being said, in chapter 2, Jeremiah gets right to work. God tells him, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem. And in verse 2 and 3 of the chapter, God reminds them of their history together, the kindness that they shared when they first became God's people, the love that they shared in their wilderness journey, the holiness that they sought in serving only the God of Israel. But in verse 4 and 5, God says, things aren't the way that they used to be. You don't have that kindness to me anymore. You don't have that love to me anymore. You don't have that holiness anymore. What changed? And in verse 6 through 8, he says, you've changed. I haven't changed. You've changed. As soon as you've reached the promised land, you defiled the land. The priests stopped seeking me. The pastors transgressed against me. And the prophets began to prophesy by Baal instead of God. But even though Israel is the one who turned against God, God still loved them, and he shows his love in the rest of the chapter by giving this fourfold plea in verse 9 through 37. Plea number one is in verse 10 through 13. And this is his first plea. He says, I want you to consider your foolishness. Look around you. Look around at all of the heathen nations. Show me one heathen nation that has chosen to forsake their false gods and serve another. Not one heathen nation has done that, and yet my people have forsaken the true God to serve idols. That's foolishness. Plea number two, he says, consider where your foolishness has led you in verse 14 through 17. It's led you to spoil, it's led you to waste, and it's led you to defeat. 
Plea number three in verse 18 through 28, he says, consider who you're looking to for salvation. Instead of looking to God who has saved you in the first place, instead of looking to God who had established them as a strong nation in the first place, they are intent on serving idols. He even says, you have more idols than you have cities in your nation. And when captivity comes, you better be willing to call to them and not me. Plea number four, he says, consider the consequences of all of this. Rebellion, destruction, pride, neglect, wickedness, blindness, injustice, shame. And you'll read about all of that in chapter two. Now, just in case Judah is failing to understand just how horrible their sin is, look at what God says in chapter three, verse one. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, Shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. You're going and worshiping your idols, and then you come to my temple and give sacrifices like everything's fine. Look at verse 2. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places, and see where thou hast not been lying with. Judah's idolatry is compared with adultery. After all, Israel had entered into a covenant with God. The first commandment of that covenant being, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Israel blatantly and consistently and unapologetically broke that covenant with God. And you could even say they immediately broke it. They were worshiping a golden calf before Moses even came down from the mount. Moses goes up into the mount to say, God, great news. The people have said they want to join the covenant. And God says, go back down. No wonder Moses broke all the commandments at once, right? God explains that their unfaithfulness to him is why such, co such consequences have to come. And you would think that these consequences would cause Judah to pray and would cause Judah to repent, but they refuse. But God reveals an even bigger problem that he has with Judah in verse 6 through 11. He says, here's a bigger problem I have with you. Judah watched the northern kingdom of Israel go into idolatry. Judah watched as the kingdom of Israel put a golden calf in Beersheba and a golden calf in, I'm sorry, a golden calf in Bethel and a golden calf in Dan. Judah watched as the northern kingdom of Israel's idolatry led them into captivity. And even though they saw all of that, they still chose to do it themselves. And God says, Israel is actually more justified than you, even though they were the first people to go into it. They are more justified than you because you should have known better. You should have learned from their mistakes, but you didn't. And yet, and this is going to be a recurring theme in Jeremiah. Even though Israel chose to turn and, serve, idol, uh, and serve, uh, serve idols, and then Judah still is choosing, God is still calling for them to return. He's still calling for them to turn back. In verse 12, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. If Israel would turn, God promises to forgive he says, I'll give you pastors that will lead you. God says, I'll dwell with you. All nations would worship in Jerusalem. I would unify Israel and Judah again. But if that would ever happen, Israel has to change. He says in verse 19 through 21, if God is going to treat them as children, they must treat him as a father. 
if they are going to be God's bride, they need to be faithful to him alone. If they're going to be clean before God, they need to pray and they need to confess their sin. And the end of the chapter gives kind of what this ideal confession would look like, that they would turn to God, turn away from their idols, admit that their idols have brought no profit to them, confess their sins, so on and so forth. So here's where we need to stop and think for a moment. In just these first three chapters of Jeremiah, Israel and Judah, even though Israel is already in captivity in Assyria, both of them are being offered a choice. God is saying, if you would return to me, if you would repent from your sin, I would forgive you and everything would be back to normal, how I wanted it to be. So chapter four is going to ask the question, what are they going to do? What is Israel going to do? What is Judah going to do? Are they going to repent and turn? And none of this fake stuff that has happened up until now, but truly, with all of your heart, he says, you need to circumcise your heart and turn to be holy. Or are you going to have captivity? And God just gives this horrible punishment that would come from the captivity in Babylon. And look with me in verse 10, when Jeremiah sees this punishment that is to come. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas, or but instead, the sword reaches unto the soul. Jeremiah has a disagreement here. Wait a second, Lord. If this is the case, if Babylon is going to come and completely wipe us out, you've deceived the people. Now, I want you to take that and put it in your pocket for me. We will come back to it tonight. But God confirms Jeremiah's greatest fears. Israel is going to make the wrong choice. Judah is going to make the wrong choice. Judgment is coming and not peace. So through pretty much the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah is begging Judah to repent. He asks the question in verse 21, how long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? He's asking God, if this judgment is coming, how long is this invasion and punishment on Jerusalem going to last? How bad is it going to be? And God's answer is a vision of horrible destruction. He starts calling back to what the world looked like before he even created it. Look at what God says in verse 23. I beheld the earth and lo, it was without form and void. He said the destruction is going to be so bad on Jerusalem, it's going to basically be like Jerusalem was uncreated. And yet, he gives this little glimmer of hope in verse 27. Look at what he says at the very end. Yet will I not make a full end. He says, my punishment is going to be brutal, but not final. And that's how it is with God's children. When God needs to get your attention, he will do whatever it takes. It could be brutal, but it will never be final. But why so brutal? Why such consequences? Why such a horrible punishment? And chapter 5 gives the answer. We're going to read verse 1 through 5. Look at this. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know... And seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, I will pardon it. And, they, and though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish. 
for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. Stop. Let me explain what's happening here. God says the reason that punishment is going to be so difficult or and so, um, so tremendous is a better word is because you could go through Jerusalem right now and you could not find one person that is executing judgment. You could not find one person that is seeking the truth. If you found one man in all of Jerusalem that was doing right and seeking right, I would pardon the whole city. Now, Jeremiah says, but, but Lord, wait, surely those people are the poor people. Surely those people are the unlearned people, the ones that don't know about the Lord and the ones that don't know about the law. Maybe they're just doing it in ignorance. So look at what he says then in verse five. I will get me unto the great men. Those are the older people, the people in leadership. I will get thee unto the great men and will speak unto them for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. God was absolutely right. There was, abs- there was no one, everyone in Jerusalem, both young and old, both leader and follower, had forsaken God's law. Think about this with me. At least Sodom and Gomorrah had lot. But what did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He completely destroyed it. Even though lot was there, just lot was there. Jerusalem doesn't have one person. And yet God says again, I will not make a full end. If that doesn't show you the love and mercy of God towards his people, nothing will. That he would, <laughs> that he would utterly destroy Sodom with one person in it, but will save Jerusalem, his own city, the city that's supposed to be the holy city, He will spare it even though there is not one person in there. Judah can't be surprised that such great punishment is coming when they consider how great their sin is. And this is where I really want to stop and do some preaching if God would help me. But in verse 20 through 31, God begins listing all of these sins. He says, you refuse to listen or look to God. You refuse to fear God. You refuse to thank God. You live in open sin. Verse, 20, verse 29, shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? What do you mean, why am I bringing punishment? Shall I not visit for these things? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? Now that caught my attention. Did it catch yours? So let me stop here right now, okay? First of all, look with me at all of the people's problems. Let's focus in. If you're taking notes, let's put it down and let's just focus in right here and follow because this is where I'm going to apply everything. We're going to get to verse to chapter 6 and then we're going to be done. Think of all the people's problems that Jeremiah is bringing out. God has been forsaken by everyone in Jerusalem. Idols are worshipped anywhere and everywhere. They have as many idols as they have cities in their country. The poor are mistreated. The widows are neglected. The strangers are rejected. And the law is being followed for show and not in sincerity. Now, where did all of these problems stem from? What is the cause of all of this? Who is to blame? And I want you to think about that. Who is to blame for Jerusalem? God's city, 
for Israel and Judah, God's people, being in the position that they are in right now. Now, the easy answer would be, well, the people are to blame. How many of you would agree with that? The people are to blame. But God gets more specific. And we must get more specific, especially if we're going to learn the lesson that I want to bring forward tonight. Yes, the people are to blame as a whole, but there's a certain group of those people that God elevates in blame. We read about it at the very beginning of the chapter when he said, I will get me unto the great men. Jeremiah said, let me go to the older people. Let me go to the people who God has called to be leaders. Let me go to the people who should know better. Let me go to the ones who know what the Bible says, but lo and behold, even the leaders were corrupt and wicked and backslidden. That's the people's problem. And he points out next what I wrote, the prophet's presumption. Now, I know you're not taking notes right now, so I'll give these all later. The prophet's presumption, verse 31 The prophets prophesy falsely. A prophet was a leader in that he was called by God to deliver God's word to the people. But in Jeremiah's day, the prophets were bold enough to presume that their word was better than God's word. And can I say, as it was in Jeremiah's day, so it was in Jesus' day, and so it was today. Men who have the nerve to call themselves pastors, men who claim to be preachers, who have the audacity to presume that their opinion about God's word is better than God's word itself. Now, church, never forget, the word of man has never saved a soul. The word of man has never convicted a sinner. The word of man has never built a strong church. The word of man has never sent the devil running. God's word saves souls. God's word changes lives. God's word uh, builds churches. God's word defeats the devil. And as long as you live, you need to stay away from man's word and you need to hold on to God's. Let that be your decision tonight. Then he points out the priest's pride. So you have the prophets prophesying falsely. What are the priests doing? The priests bear rule by their means. So Jeremiah first points out, God's word is being replaced with man's word. No bueno. But then he says, God's work is being done in man's power. Yes, everywhere, all throughout the globe today, people are trying to do God's work in their own power. Preaching is being done in man's power. Sunday schools are being taught in man's power. Sowing is being carried out in man's power. Prayers are being prayed in man's power. Ministries are being performed in man's power. Much later than this, when they come back from the 70 years of captivity, there's a man leading them back named Zerubbabel. And it is his job to rebuild the temple. And the prophet Zechariah reminds him, he says, Zerubbabel, this work is not going to be done by might or by power but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. No work can be done for God without the power of God. Remember that. And by that logic, God is not going to ask you to do any work that he is not willing to give you the power to do so. But when people tell God, I got this, he'll back away. He's not going to fight you for the throne of your heart. He's not going to fight you for the throne of your ministry. If you tell him, if you have enough pride 
to tell him, I can do God's work in my own power. What horrible pride that is. And notice with me next the people's perspective. The prophets prophesy falsely, priests bear rule in their means, and my people love it. My people love to have it so. Not one of God's people had an issue with the horrible state of Judah. Not one person. In fact, they loved it. They loved hearing man's word instead of God's word. They loved that the priests were bearing rule by their means and not God's means. You know why? It was easier on their sin. It was easier on their flesh. It's unfortunate, but many would rather listen to a positive lie than a negative truth, right? Tickle my ears. Tell me things that are convenient for me. Many people would much rather sit in a pew and have somebody tell them a positive lie than a negative truth. With the prophets prophesying falsely and the priests bearing rule by their means, the people found permission to go on in their sin without reproof or restraint. Now, church, I, I don't know a good word to use, but I adjure you, I beseech you, the moment anybody, including myself, stands up in this precious place and starts preaching to you man's word instead of God's word or starts doing it in his own power and I start doing it in my own power instead of God's power, don't love it. Stand against it. You understand that when the people love it, it kind of created this vicious cycle. The prophets start preaching their own word and the priests start doing their job off of what the prophets are preaching, and the people love that. And when the prophets see that the people love it, it emboldens them to keep on preaching their word. Well, they're responding more to my word instead of God's word, so I'm going to keep preaching that. And then the priest, well, it's easier for us too. And just on and on and on and on we go. Somebody's got to stop the cycle. And that's where Jeremiah is going to come in, but it should have been the people. The people could have stopped it. Now, it should have been the leaders, is, is what, I, what I mean. It should have been the leaders, but it could have been the people. The people could have stopped it. And I love the question that God asks at the end of the chapter in verse 31. What will ye do in the end thereof? Where do you think all of this is going to lead you? The product. What is the product going to be? And chapter 6 shows us the product of this attitude is judgment. Jerusalem has shown herself to be a fountain of wickedness. Look in chapter 6, verse 13. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. Do you remember what we put in our pocket earlier? Remember Jeremiah said, Oh, our Lord God, you've deceived the people because you said that they were going to have peace, but instead there's a sword. Look at what God says in verse 14. They have healed, these prophets, these priests, they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly by saying what? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. God said, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Don't blame that on me. I have never said that peace was going to come through wickedness. In fact, I, if you would have listened to Isaiah 60 years ago, I said, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. So Jeremiah is getting news to him, all of these preachers around him, all of his peers, if you will, are prophesying falsely. There is no peace coming. Even through all this great reform, Jeremiah is going to have to stand up and say, no, there is no peace. Judgment is coming. Look in verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see 
And ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, no, we will not walk therein. God had given Judah chance after chance to repent, but they rejected him. So God is going to send punishment. Jeremiah is described in the end of chapter 6 kind of as their last line of defense as a tower and a fortress among God's people. But unfortunately, Judah is showing themselves to be too far gone. And it's not hard to see why. We cannot wonder why there were so many problems. And I'm done. Certainly the people were to blame. But God takes extra time to point out the blame that he specifically placed on the leaders. When the leaders are corrupt, what do we expect from the followers? How can we expect the followers to be right when the leaders are wrong? Are we surprised that our politics are so off with the leadership that's in government right now? Now, in the context of Jeremiah, the leaders were the prophets and the priests, but that lesson is universal. It's, it's a universal lesson to any leader. Sir, if you're a leader at work, if you're a leader here in the church, how can the followers be expected to do right if the leadership is wrong? A pastor is the leader of the church. How can the people of the church be expected to be right when the pastor's wrong? A father is the leader of the home. How can the home be expected to be right when the father is wrong? A husband is the leader of the wife. Parents are the leader of the children. How can we expect the children to be right when the parents are wrong? Teachers are the leaders of a class. How can we expect the pupils to be right if the teachers are teaching in their own power? That's for the academy or Sunday school. We need God's power in order to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Men are the leaders of boys. That's in uh, Titus chapter 2. Gentlemen, don't be surprised if these young boys go off and start living in the world if that's what you're doing. Ladies are supposed to be the leaders of, of the younger girls. These precious girls are going to follow in your footsteps, ladies. Make sure you're following Jesus. Upperclassmen are supposed to lead the, the lowerclassmen. And Christians, God has called us to be the spiritual leaders of the world. We are kings and priests in Jesus Christ. Remember that? We're, we're preachers of the gospel. We're a city on a hill, a light on a candlestick, a salt in a flavorless world. What hope does the world have to do what is right if the ones that God has placed in leadership seek to lead by their own opinion and in their own power. No wonder such punishment is falling on this nation. Because it's not the schools, it's not city hall, it's not institutions and universities, it's not the theaters, it's not the gymnasiums, it's the church. It's the church that's called to lead. And many churches are failing in their leadership. So, Easy now. What's the prescription? All right, if you've been stopping taking notes and you want to write these down real quick, you can do so, okay? So number one was the people's problems. We talked about all that. That's what Jeremiah is going over, the people's problems. Part of that was the prophet's presumption, the priest's pride, the people's perspective. God asked, what is the product of that going to be? It's going to be judgment. It's not going to be blessing. 
And what's the prescription? What is going to fix it? And God's prescription is someone who will stand for and on the truth of God's word. And that is exactly what Jeremiah is going to do in chapters 7 through 10, which we'll get to next week. Jeremiah is going to stand in the door of the temple that was just repaired by Josiah and say, let me talk to you leaders for a moment. And he goes on for three chapters and rips them to shreds. It's an incredible thing. So what will we do tonight? I'm looking for one man who will say, I'm going to lead my home. I am looking for parents who will say, we are going to lead our children. You are called to be the leader of your children, not the friend of your children. I'm looking for teachers, Sunday school teachers, who will say, I'm going to lead my class. And by God's grace, I'm not going to do it in my own way and by my own power. I'm going to do it with God's power. I'm looking for some teenagers who will lead. Say, I'm going to be a leader in the youth group. Christians who will say, I'm going to be a leader in this world. Again, not by your own power or by your opinion, but through God's power and according to his word. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.